Well, uh, we are in this wonderful little series on the Beatitudes, and uh, thank you so much for participating and joining with us. I'll be really honest with you, when we started out uh, a few weeks ago, I I had a little fear in my heart, which was like, how are we going to get a sermon series out of seven words? Uh, I have no idea what we're going to say, but um, I have so loved journeying and adventuring with you through these kingdom statements of, of Jesus. And I've loved the way that you have interacted. I'll let you into another little secret. Sometimes when someone says to me, oh, pastor, nice sermon, that that doesn't actually change my life. Like, I thank you for it, but that's not what changed my life. What changes my, my life and warms my heart is when someone says, Man, I have been wrestling this week with that. <laughs> like, I have been talking about it with my spouse. I've been at home. I've been, like, trying to figure out how can I apply this kingdom truth to my life. And it's really, really, like, getting to the heart of who I am. And so that's really exciting. And thank you very much for all the comments and, like, emails and texts and everything that you've been sending, saying how much you're wrestling with these beautiful Jesus statements of the kingdom um, of God. Last week, John did a really wonderful job helping us to look at the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. And this week, we're joining that one with the one the week before, which was about the meek with what's on the screen now. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We're going to talk about mercy. And I don't know about you, but it feels to me mercy is in short supply. There's lots of things that are in short supply around the world at the moment, I realize. But mercy is definitely on the list of things that we we are really lacking. And the last two years have been beautiful but brutal, haven't they? That we have seen new things about the human race that maybe we've never experienced before. And whether you've been within the global church, whether you've been outside of the church, whether you've been in this nation or or most other nations, we have seen a lack of mercy. We have seen a lot of righteousness, a lot of justice. We've seen a lot of approaches to trying to get to what we want, but we haven't seen a lot of grace, I don't think. We haven't seen a lot of kindness. We haven't seen a lot of mercy. And so we want to take some minutes together to explore what mercy is, who it's for, and what we do with it. But in order to do that, we're going to have to take a little adventure together. We're going to have to pass through some little topics along the way, a little bit like a drive up the PCH on a Sunday afternoon, away from the heat of this side of LA, just in case any of you are planning it. And we're going to stop off on a few different uh, places before we get to how we apply mercy um, to our life. Well, okay, let's go for it. You're going to need your Bibles, going to need to be quick, got lots of ground to cover, but here we go. What is mercy? Well, lots of different secular definitions, but this is the one that really helped me as I was looking at it this week. Uh, Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone for whom it is within their power to punish or harm. Like uh, meekness, there is this choice, this sense of something that we can do. But specifically in the terms of mercy, there's an opportunity to punish. There's an opportunity for retribution. There's an opportunity to act badly towards someone. And yet, mercy is the choice not to. Mercy is the choice to refrain, to have self-control, to show compassion and forgiveness when it would be well within our rights to do something else. And I want to start this morning with the idea that in order for us to know mercy, in order for us to have a definition for mercy, a reality of mercy, we actually also need a definition and an understanding and a firm grasp 
of truth. And truth is a really interesting topic at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I feel that we live in this profoundly new moment in human history where what is true anymore has changed and is changing all the time. I think if you went back like six, seven hundred years, probably not in California because it would be a very different place six, seven hundred years, but say you were to travel to some parts of Europe or other places in the world six or seven hundred years ago, and you said, hey, what's, what is truth? you would have probably got a really stable, well-understood idea of truth. You'd have understood probably something about the nature of, of a deity, of a kingdom, of something who, someone who created the world. You would see that trickle down into the life of the legal system, societal life, the way that families operate, the way that education is. It would actually have been relatively external and stable. But if you fast forward from that point of history through, we had like the Industrial Revolution and all this amazing advances in science and technology, and then into the Enlightenment where we had kind of like explosions of art and creativity and new ways of thinking, and now if you come into where we are today, actually truth is really different. Like the idea that truth is agreed, that it's consistent, that it comes from outside ourselves is probably completely challenged. Instead, you hear phrases like this. Well, that could be true for you, man, but it's not true for me. Like, that's your truth, but it's not my truth. That might be your experience, but it's not my experience. In fact, we, we're in this moment of history where we are rapidly, quickly, like, dis, we are, we are deconstructed, just deconstructing those things that we've been told and the things that happened before us. And on one side, I think there's some really good and important work going on, you know, to the fact that we are looking to the why question, and it's helped us to deconstruct some things like sexism and racism and other things that have been deeply ingrained in the culture which have not been good. That's great. But I wonder if the, the action of continuing to deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct actually takes us to a place where we don't actually know anymore what is true where well, we don't actually know anymore what's even good and what's even bad. Because all you can really say if you, you stand in that place is, well, badness is probably hurting other people and goodness is probably not hurting other people. But then even that comes apart because you realize quickly that a lot of harm can be done in the protection of trying to say nothing bad about another group of people. I, um, I grew up in Hong Kong like Tom did and Jacinta and some of the rest of you. I don't know why we have a big Hong Kong lick, but we do. And um, the re one of the reasons I was in Hong Kong as a kid was because my dad was an engineer. And one of his jobs was to help build a really big new airport that was on one of the outlying islands. And the way they basically did it was to, to blow up the top of a mountain and throw it in the sea and then create a new bit of land where there was sea before. And next to the airport, they built a massive new city. And one of my dad's friends was charged with building these huge, great like tower blocks where people would live and work. They were about 60 stories tall. And they opened with this great fanfare and celebration. Until after about six months, people who were living in these tower blocks started to notice these massive cracks appearing in the walls. Now, like being on the 60th story of a building is one thing, but being in the 60th story when there's a crack appearing in the wall next to you, probably not the best feeling you're ever going to get. 
And so the architects were called back in and were like, what happened to the building? What's gone wrong? And so they went to their original designs and they looked through it and they were like, no, there's nothing wrong with the designs. Everything should have been correct. And so then they went back through the building process and looked at what had happened in the construction and they realized to their horror that what they'd actually done was that they'd awarded the contract for the building of the foundations to the local triads or a company run by the triads. And instead of like piling these huge, great steel beams right the way down into the bedrock, which is granite, which is why you have those big skyscrapers in Hong Kong, they hadn't done it. They'd just gone halfway down. And so although you had this beautiful 60-story, beautiful, incredible thing on the top, there wasn't enough underneath it to support it. And then the first signs of rain, the first signs of a storm, and the cracks started to happen. The building started to lean, and it became extremely dangerous. Now, I share that because I wonder if the moment that we live in, which is a moment of deconstruction, a moment where we take apart the things that are below us and behind us and before us, actually might lead us into that same place. A place where we can no longer have the foundations that we need to stand upon any more. And despite the fact that we're searching for truth all the time, Scientists build careers searching for it. Students spend fortunes collecting it. Businesses and universities devote all their resources to trying to get it. We're losing it. And we don't know where to put our feet anymore. There's nothing below us. And I want to say this morning that we, we need truth. Human beings are desperate and need truth to stand on. So where do we find what is true? And you'll see in a minute why this is connected to mercy. But I want to suggest, and you'll be very unsurprised to hear me say this as your pastor, that instead of looking deeper and deeper inside ourselves to find out what is true, because at least with me that doesn't work because I don't I have too much conflict and not enough wisdom in here, that actually we need to go further and further outside of ourselves to find what is true. I don't know if anybody saw this picture this week. Um, It's of the James Webb uh, telescope, some of the first images. And if you didn't see it, these these images are taken. They're so far away that the light takes so long to get here. So these images show us what the world was like, what creation was like just after the moment of creation. They're beautiful. And these images stirred my heart a lot this week because what they said to me was, wow. Somebody has some creativity and design when they put this together. Like the idea that this could have all just happened out of some random chance, some mathematical thing that happened out of completely nothing, seems to me like totally unhelpful. Because clearly if you look at the beauty, if you look at the design, you look at the physics and the mass and the chemistry, it's so intricate. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. It tells us of an intelligent designer, somebody who knew what he was doing. And it also reminds me that, that it tells us about someone who, who actually wanted us to know what was real. Somebody who wanted us to know how things were supposed to work. This isn't about a God who just did a big bang thing and ran away. But who continues to help us and love us and cares for us. And out of that place that because he's so good, amazingly, thankfully, he gave us an instruction manual. Like, I don't know how much you like instruction manuals. If you're a guy here this morning, you might be like, I hate instruction manuals. I prefer to take on the IKEA furniture with my own skills and hands and intellect. 
But deep down, we, we need the instruction manual, right? And we're so, I'm so grateful that God himself not only did that kind of beautiful thing of creation, that he also gave us an instruction manual for it. And this, the Bible, is the most printed, sold, given away book every single year since they invented the printing press, when they invented the printing press in order to print it six, seven hundred years ago. This beautiful, wonderful thing is full of truth. It tells us not just about the creator and the why of creation, but it also gives us these beautiful, strong, concrete, wonderful definitions for what is good, for what is bad, for what is true, for what is not. Now we might say, well, hold on a minute, like Ben, that's the problem, isn't it? Like, the problem is the idea that for the last hundreds and hundreds of years, people who've called themselves Christians have taken the Bible and they've done these really weird things with it. And actually, some of the problems that we have in society, that's the problem of the Bible. Like, wouldn't it be better if we just threw it away and instead we just kind of said everything is nice and then we, we kind of like just invented this new space based on, on what we think and what we feel? Wouldn't that be better? Well, I want to suggest to you that maybe the problem isn't the foundation. It's the houses that we've built on the foundation. And if we want a new reality in future, it's not going to work for us if we just throw the foundations away and try and build houses without foundations. But it's how we build a better story, how we build a better reality on the same wonderful, true foundations. Now, just a couple of things to help us, because I think we need to just acknowledge that there are some complexities here, right? This is both wonderfully, simply, and gorgeously simple, but it's also wonderfully and simply and gorgeously complex, too. That sometimes when we read this, we actually don't go far enough into its truth, which means we get left with what is less than true within it. You know, we, we need to know something about who wrote this and why they wrote this. We need to know something about how the original audience heard it. We need to know something about how this thing that we read over here relates to what this thing over here says about God. And that's why like, sermons matter. It's why Bible studies matter. It's why we read. It's why the work of people like Fuller next door to us, it really matters because it is the work of delving deeply into what is true to find the foundations on which we can build everything else about our lives. But it is complex, and we need to handle it well. We also need to realize, I suggest, that we need to use it well when we find out what is true. Because some people, sadly, don't use this Bible really well. In fact, they use it more like a weapon or something to prove their own points. You know, right, if you open the Bible, you can prove anything, right? If you pick the right verse in, or the wrong verse in the wrong context, you know you can get anything. Did you know that you can prove that Santa Claus is real in the Bible? Now you're waking up. Here we go, right? Zechariah 2.6 in the Old English translation says this. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, said the Lord. Do you know that? There you are, you see. If you, you're going to go home now, aren't you, and check this out. That's an old English translation, by the way, but it is real. You can take the Bible and prove anything, but that doesn't mean that's what God meant. It doesn't mean what God, it's what God intended. We, we need to do some work of reading the Bible well and holistically. 
And we also need to thirdly realize that when we read the Bible, we read it through these kind of different lenses. Um, I meant to bring my sunglasses this morning and I forgot. But before I, before I came to uh, LA, I, I was all about the free pairs of sunglasses. Anyone else secretly into free pairs of sunglasses? Yeah, with Blaze Pizza or something written along the side of them. of like 100 pairs of those. And I thought that was enough. And then when I came to a place which is actually sunny, I realized that's not enough to care for your eyes. And it's not very safe when you have bad eyes and you have scratched pairs of free sunglasses. So I went, at least online, to, to, onto eBay, and I bought some like Oakley Holbrook prisms, if you know what they are. They are super awesome sunglasses. And they not only help me see better, but what I really love about them is that they have brown lenses. Anyone else got like sunglasses with brown lenses? Yeah. What is so awesomely cool about sunglasses with brown lenses is that they make everything look green. I don't know how that works exactly. But, but when you're driving through the streets of LA in a hazy, hot summer's day when nothing is actually very green, they remind me of home because it feels like the lush green meadows of England, even when it's not. Now, my sunglasses don't actually change what I'm seeing. They don't change the image. They just highlight different colors, different wavelengths of light that are coming through them. And theologians call that like the hermeneutic that we all look at truth through. You know, the fact that I am like a 39-year-old dude who's lived in particular parts of the world means that when I open up the Bible, I actually see something a little bit different maybe than an 80-year-old lady in Southeast Asia might read the Bible. Now, we can say, well, one of us is right and one of us is wrong, and maybe that could be true. But I wonder if it might also be true that actually one of us sees one part of the beauty and the truth, and one of us sees another part of the beauty and the truth. That in order for us to get to truth, I want to suggest we don't actually need less voices in our lives to just find the person who actually got it right and everyone else got it wrong. We actually need more voices, more people who are committed in the power of the Holy Spirit to helping us. That's why in this series, you might have noticed, we've been looking at all sorts of different voices. We looked at this kind of aging British rocker, Stoogie. We've looked at this guy called Raniero Cantalamessa, who was one of the, the monks who advises the Pope. We've looked at a rabbi. We've looked at like female theologians. We looked at male theologians. There's something about finding truth that says we do it together. And we take the Bible really seriously. And what David goes on to say in the Psalms is that therefore out of it, we can learn to love the law. We can learn to love what is true. I don't know if you love God's truth. I think when I was probably like 15, I thought it was terrible. It's like, it's restrictive. It stops me doing all the fun things I want to do. But I'm 39 now and, and you know what? I really love it. I do. I am so grateful that God took the time to tell me what is real and what's not. I'm so glad that he took the time to tell me what's true and, and what is not. And I want to suggest that even if we look at what is being built on the foundations of the past and we don't like the house, that we don't throw away its very foundations. All right. So what about like mercy? What's that got to do at all with mercy? Well, Mercy flows from truth. If you don't have truth, you can't have mercy. If mercy is the definition of what happens when something is wrong and we choose to respond out of a place of not acting, then we have to know what is wrong. And the only way we can know what is wrong is to know what truth is. You with me? 
So where do, we, where do we do it? How do we do it? And how does the gospel help us to understand, the Bible help us to understand what is true? Well, I want to do this little kind of um, slightly cheesy, but you might have seen it before, little, little, little exercise with you. Okay. So let's assume this particularly beautiful piece of perspex and metal um, is the, the scale of good at the top to bad at the bottom. Okay. Now, I've got some names written on some post-it notes here. Um, and I'd like you, and I'm afraid there's no prizes this morning, except maybe heavenly ones. Uh, I want you to tell me where on this scale would you put these people? Okay. They're not that hard. Okay, ready? The first one is Hitler. Any offer? Okay. <laughs> Dave Small's like, under the ground. Right, okay. Okay. Don't overthink this. It's not that hard. Okay, number two. Martin Luther King. Where would you put Martin Luther King? Okay, we're going pretty high. Okay, I don't know how high you want to do it, but let's go, let's go right up here. Okay, all right. Next one, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, I think, I think we've got fairly good consensus. We're up here somewhere. I'm not entirely sure. I don't want to be controversial, and I'm putting below, but you might not like the fact that he's below, but okay. Oh, and... Now we've got a theological problem. <laughs> okay, stay. Okay, and last one, Mother Teresa. Okay, we're, we're going in high. All right. High, see if they'll stay there. But here's my real question. Where are you? Where are you? Please don't, please don't answer. <laughs> it's okay, no, don't, um, this is not like public shaming. Where, where are you? Now, I guess if we were all honest, we would probably all have a rough idea of where we might put ourselves. And I also guess that we kind of know, because even if you're not a Christian here today, you can, you've been able to do that really easily, because you knew what was good and what was bad. And even if you're not a Christian, in reality, you probably used the Bible somewhere far enough back to give you that morality definition. And I imagine you would probably put yourself somewhere in the middle. On a good day, you might put yourself further up. This morning, you might put yourself further down. I don't know. But the question really is, is, where's the line? Like, where is the good versus bad line? If we believe that there's a God, if we believe he's holy, if we believe he has standards, if we believe in here that there is something that we're supposed to live toward, where is the line between good and bad? If there's like a heaven, if there's a future that we can get to, if we can have a relationship with God that's available to some but not necessarily all, then where's the line? I mean, I guess it's probably above Adolf Hitler somewhere. But is it, like, is it, is it around Mother Teresa? Is it, is it you? Are you in? Are you out? I mean, where, like, where are we? It's like a huge existential crisis. Well, here's the truth that the Bible gives you. There is a line, but it isn't here. The bad news is that the line for acceptance of God is actually not any of these places. It's actually up on the moon. Because what this Bible tells us is that there is a God who is so holy who is so perfect, who is so far beyond anything that we can see and ask and understand that actually his standards are so far above ours that we're actually on our own in really big, big trouble. That actually if we're left to our own devices, that the, the wages of sin and the brokenness and all the mess that is entered into the world through the devil means we can't. It's just too much for any one of us. But this is what mercy is, church. That while because of that 
sense of failure, which by the way, Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King all understood really well. Because of our failure, we deserved some sort of punishment for it. We deserved some sort of response, but yet we didn't get it. Because God's mercy is God saying to you, even though you couldn't do it, even though it was too much for you, even though you were never capable of getting to a standard of holiness on your own, even though the wages of the sin and the brokenness that we all carry, every one of us should have cut us off from God, should have left us in a place of eternal like separation, that God did it for us. And the way that God paid the price was to nail it to the cross, was to take all of it, the shame, the brokenness, the sin, the failures, the words, and to nail it to his son. And when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus took it. He took your past, he took your present, and he took your future. And it's the most incredible gift. We deserved something bad, and yet God gave us mercy. And when I found that out as a young man, that changed my life. Because like someone I was talking to this week, they said, man, I've spent my whole life trying to be good enough. I spent my whole life trying to just get higher and higher up this standard, but the problem is that I feel always like a failure. This young man said to me, like, I, I just, you know, like, I just, every time I try and do something right, I mess it up. And always I feel like I'm not getting any higher up the chart than I want to, and everybody doesn't like me. And I was able to say to him, hey, man, let me tell you something. If it's about you trying to be good enough, you probably will always feel like a failure. But the good news, the best news, the greatest news is that God's mercy covers over your shame, your weakness, your failure. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the messes. If you come before him, if you give your life to him, that he sees you as whole, as complete. He sees you as blameless. And that's what mercy is, church. Paul says it like this, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. That church is why Christianity is so different from every other world religion which just tells you to be better. Because in Christianity, we recognize that we cannot earn our way to salvation. But there's more, one more important thing we need to wrestle with. And that is what Jesus says in the Beatitude this morning when he says this, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Is there any caveat to receiving the mercy of God? Well, on the broader sense, no. God's love is for every human being. But time after time after again, Jesus says something quite hard. You notice it right there. Who gets mercy? Those who show mercy. Who gets mercy? Those who show mercy. Jesus tells this amazing story. He tells this story in Matthew 18 of a king. 
a king who is incredibly rich, is incredibly powerful, incredibly just. And he one day summons one of his servants to come and see him. He's another, maybe a regional ruler over an area. And the regional ruler comes to see him because he owes the king billions. The amount of money in modern translation is just incomparably large. And what he's done is he's been corrupt. He's, been mis- he's mismanaged it and he's racked up a debt. And the king says, hey, well, you owe me this money. The money is real. We can't write it off. We've got to do something. So where's the money? And the servant says, I'm, like, I'm so sorry. I just can't. It's way, way beyond my means to pay this debt. And astonishingly, even though the amount is so large, the king says, okay, I will take the debt on my shoulders. Not I will write it off, it doesn't exist. Someone's got to pay the obligations of the debt. And yet the king takes the obligations of the debt and he says to the servant, you can go. And the servant walks out free, without shame, without having to ever pay that debt back. But on his way home, the servant goes to see one of his team. And one of his team owes him some money. And it's not anything like the same amount, but it's, it's still a few thousand dollars. And he says to his servant, hey, where's my money? And the servant at the bottom says, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have it. Like, I can't pay it back. Just show me some mercy. Show me some grace. Show me some kindness. And I promise I'll pay it back. And the regional guy says, no. No way. You owe me money. You're wicked. You're lazy. You need to come and give me what I want. Get it to me right now. And if you don't get it to me, I'm going to hold it over you. I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay for it. And that's what happens. And the original servant, the original king, we're told, hears about what's happened. And the original king finds out about what his regional guy has done. And he summons him back. And he lays into me, says, you wicked, you lazy guy. Like, I showed you incredible mercy. I wrote off the biggest debt that was totally unpayable. You could not have done it. And yet you walked straight out of the door and you held it over somebody else. Clearly, you did not understand what mercy is all about. Jesus, over and over again, tells the same story. In Matthew 7, if you forgive, God will forgive you. Luke 6, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Church, it's brutal, it's hard, it's difficult, but yet we have an invitation, a command, a kingdom story of mercy that we are told to live in. That's our story. That's our invitation. And because we have been people who have been shown incredible mercy, the invitation is to show that same mercy to other people. Uh, Stuji in the Attitudes, Beatitudes Project, he says this, God is on your side when there is no reason for God to be on your side. And the invitation, therefore, is to receive that mercy and to pass it on to others for whom there is no reason for you to be on their side. I wonder this morning, who do you have in your life for whom there is no reason for you to be on their side? Who do you have in your life who you have made the other, who you see as the other, who you speak of as the other? What I love about that word mercy is that it actually, there's a number of different words translation. One of them is the word rachamin, and its root is this actually very feminine sense of the womb and motherliness. 
that there is something about motherliness, there is something about care, that there is something about compassion towards the other. And yet, if I'm really honest, I don't think this is a story we've lived really well in the church. As I look at the last years, I think we've done a pretty solid job at righteousness and justice, and we've done a pretty solid job at trying to work out who was right and who was wrong and who should have done this and who should have done that. But I wonder how good a job have we ever done at mercy. And I want to close with this idea that I'd love you to go away and wrestle with. That if we are to be the church of the kingdom, that we are going to have to be able to hold these two concepts together really well over the next year. The first is truth. Truth is not vague. Truth is not something that has no meaning. Truth is not saying that everyone's right and no one's wrong and there is nothing good and bad anymore. Truth is this, and it's not negotiable, and it's hard, and it's controversial within our world, but it's real. But we have to hold it with mercy too. Because if we do not hold it with mercy, all we become is the very people who look out at the world, are people who've never even read this, have got no worldview, have got no acceptance of this, and condemn them for their behavior, condemn them because they don't understand, condemn them because they don't choose to live under the rules of this, because they don't love it, and they don't know it, and they've never met its creator. And all we do is we shut the doors, and we ensure that they will never want to know us and have anything to do with us. But if we take truth, and we apply it with the highest, most incredible degree of mercy, then I believe we are opening something beautiful up, something wonderful, that is a way to the kingdom of God. Now, I know that's hard. I mean, if you don't feel at this moment in history that mercy and truth are really hard to hold together, then I don't know where you're living. If you don't feel like it's hard to hold the standards of the Bible really high in your life within your group of friends or your family, then you may be living in a different place to where I do. But I promise you, this is the way to life. This with mercy. If we just choose to shout, we will get nowhere. But the more lost the world gets, the more we're invited to bring, its tr- bring, them back, bring back truth. The more angry the world gets, the more merciful the church is supposed to get. The kingdom of God is found for the merciful because they will receive mercy. That's it. And there's no greater place that we find mercy. There's no greater place that we see mercy. We experience mercy at the cross than at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take communion together. And this is serious, church. I know in our church tradition, sometimes we kind of pass this one past and get some bread and wine and think it's all fun and go on. This is serious because this is where we get to the heart of the matter. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up and take some bread and some wine and you can eat it up here. We've got gluten-free bread over there, non-gluten-free bread over here. We've got wine and we've got juice. You can have whatever you want. but we're here to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And after you've taken the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and remembered what he did for you in mercy, the prayer ministry team are going to be available uh, on each side. And you don't need to necessarily go back to your seats. You can just go straight away and find prayer. 
But I specifically want to just invite you, maybe this morning, you have never taken that conscious decision to give your life to Jesus. That right now you are still fighting as hard as you can to climb the ladder and realizing that you're never going to get there. And this morning I want to invite you as you take communion to come before Jesus, to give him your life, and to receive mercy and forgiveness. So we're going to use some words that are going to come up on the screen as we come to communion.